Dotnet Rocks episode 877 with guest Kathleen Dollard. Recorded live Wednesday, May 29th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks, Carl and Richard, and we're in Toronto. We are still in Toronto. I'm enjoying Toronto. You like Toronto? It's raining like crazy here right now. It never rains in Toronto, does it? That's not true. It definitely rains in Toronto. And the uh, Dow River overflowed its banks. And so the Dow Valley Parkway is actually closed, which is, you know, like closing the main freeway through the city. So when we say it's raining, it's raining big time. We're staying, we're happily on the 14th floor of a hotel away from all that excitement. We're going to stay right here. Yeah, until it's time to leave, and that's going to be fun. Well, it's all right. The airport's not that far away. That floods are over there, but... It's swimming distance. Yeah, it's nice. So let's get started with Better No Framework. All right, buddy, what do you got? What we got? More hippo than what you got? No. Uh, I got uh, this really cool thing, and I know we've talked about it before with different people from Microsoft and stuff, but it just stuck out to me today as being super cool. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash TPL invoke, this is the parallel.invoke method, which takes an array of actions. So that uh, essentially could be an inline method. It could be in Lambda. It could be in VB. It could be address of a sub. Uh, it could be a delegate. It could be just about anything. So if you want to invoke a set of methods in parallel, you put them in an array and you call parallel.invoke. And here's what it says. No guarantees are, it says the method can be used to execute a set of operations potentially in parallel. Potentially. So I, I got to hope that the, the list of methods you pass it is more than one because the chances of being parallel when one are low. <laughs> You're funny today. <laughs> Uh, no guarantees are made about the order in which the operations execute or whether they execute in parallel, but this method does not return until each of the provided operations has completed, regardless of whether completion occurs due to normal or exceptional termination. In other words, you have an exception or it just executes normally. It's going to wait until everything's done before it comes back. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I got to think you could take a, a set of simple tasks like a log entry or some kind of update, like half a dozen things that these things need to happen. They're not dependent on each other, and they all need to finish at some point. So let's just fire them in parallel because it's that easy with this statement. Exactly. And so what's cool about this is just the simplicity of it, that you don't need to have big tasks and create uh, all sorts of infrastructure to do it. So it's good. Know it, learn it, love it. Uh, tinyurl.com slash TPL invoke. Richard, who's talking to us? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 785, and that's the one we did with Lucian Wisick when we were talking about async and parallelism in, you know, honor of our guest, of course. And this comment comes from JS Monroe, who says, I've used and loved async await. I switched to Visual Studio 2012, and one might argue too early, simply so I could take advantage of this feature. But it was said that the async keyword has to be used all the way up the call stack to the event root of the program. This is impractical, and in my experience, it is also untrue. 
You have to use async if you are going to await an async method, but if you just want to call it, you don't. An async modifier only specifies that the function intends to await something. Also, I've never thought that async had to do with multiple threads. Oddly, the idea that it does opens a great deal of doors for me. I had assumed that it was useful only when control could not be returned right after a call, such as a service call or a database interaction. The revelation that it can be used with multi-threading is an amazing grok slash zen moment for me. Simply spin up a job inside and await all the way up the stack. Beautiful. That's all he says, man. That's pretty awesome. Well, that is awesome. And, it, you know, it's great to when the light goes off. You know, because I remember that moment for me. It was amazing. Well, and I also appreciate this idea that async just means async, too. We're not guaranteeing parallelism here. We're just saying we're asynchronous. And we're not guaranteeing multiple threads either. But it could use multiple threads. Absolutely. It's just, it's up to it. It'll figure it out. Uh, and JS finishes off by saying, I'm still working on the catch up factor. He's been trying to keep up with the show. And that's why this comment is so darn late. I do love the show and I miss Rory too. We all miss Rory JS. Every once in a while, we miss Rory big time. That's absolutely true. So thank you so much for your comment. We completely agree. And a coveted.net rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a.net rocks mug, you can write a comment on the website at.net rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps for iOS, Android, Windows Phone and Windows 8. Those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises who build lots of mobile apps. They'd like to build one for you. DiatomEnterprises.com. Before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses offered by MVPs and industry experts. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much everything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start just $29 a month. And with that, let us introduce our guest. Kathleen Dollard is a .NET coach for Crystal Meth Lab. That's M-E-F, folks. Not the other nasty word. Focusing on mentoring partnerships. She's passionate about helping individuals and teams up their game without disrupting project schedules. She's been a Microsoft MVP since 1998, has given hundreds of speeches around the world, and published numerous articles on .NET. She's a Pluralsight author, including the newly released What's New in .NET 4.5 and the upcoming .NET Puzzles, Gotchas, and Cautionary Tales. She teaches core .NET technologies to let coders write better software faster. Welcome back, Kathleen. How are you doing today, Carl? Pretty good, pretty good. And it's good to have you back on the show. You are a, a veteran of .NET Rocks. I am. I don't know how many times I've been on, but it's four or five times now. At least. At least yeah. that. Always fun. Always fun. And it's always great to talk to you. Always make our brains hurt and uh, stretch it, stretching them out a little bit. So this is Beyond Async. Right. It's .NET 4.5, Beyond Async, the other things in the release. That's what we want to talk about okay. today. Good. So it's good that we talked about async up front in, you know, the comment and in the better know framework. So now that that's out of the way, we can move on. Well, async's totally awesome. And it's yeah. just that there's other things that have gotten lost behind the big, it's such a big thing that there's things that are getting lost behind it. And I really want to make sure that we're talking about those things as well. Let's do it. Such as? Well, I think that uh, th the biggest story other than uh, other than the async, the biggest stories are the portable class libraries and ETW support, event tracing for Windows support. So why don't we start with the portable class libraries yeah, sure. and uh, make sure people know what's really happening there. With the portable class libraries have come up a number of times uh, in the show, but um, you know they're I, I 
I don't know as if we have confusion around them, but it seems like something that people could get confused because portable has always been used to describe devices, you know. And yeah. it's, it is kind of, but that's not, we, what we mean is code that's portable between platforms. Right. And I think we have to go back a little bit and say when .NET started out, we had this vision that it was different platforms, weren't diff- massively different hardware. Right. And we didn't have that in our heads yet. And now we've got, you know, Xboxes and phones and massively different hardware that can't run the same framework. So the framework is quite different across different platforms, but we don't want to have to write a all of our application completely over every time we go to a new platform. Right. So the the portable class libraries are the tooling and the technology around being able to figure out what belongs across the platforms you choose. Right. The parts of the framework that exist everywhere and with the same syntax. Right. Yeah. And and one of the I mean there is definitely stuff that happened in the compiler to make it work better, but the tooling is really quite impressive behind it. You pick what you want to target, if you change what you want to target, it's going to run a check. You can take an existing app that you think is going to run everywhere and put it in a PC in a portable class library, a PCL, targeting what you want to target and your the compiler will tell you what isn't going to run and you can go fix it. We talked about this with Atlee Hunter. Was it a tablet show or a .net rocks? I can't remember. It was a tablet show yeah so uh and we asked them you know what's not in there that you wish was there and surprisingly bitmap isn't in the portable class library well as you look across the portable class libraries there's actually a lot of things that right now we're still in a transition where there's a lot of things that are not quite in sync across them and i would put mef at the top of that because the stories for the managed extensibility framework across the different frameworks right now is really rather chaotic. And I believe that dependency injection is so core to our future that we really have to get that fixed. So that's the top of my list is getting, it's there, it's just different across the different frameworks. I mean, is the goal to have a plugin that would actually go between the different framework implementations? Well, I think for the managed extensibility framework, I think absolutely that's what we're going to want to have. Because if it'll fit into a PCL, if you can have a portable class library piece that can be called, I think you also want to be able to call framework-specific things from a portable core. And that may be a bigger scenario where I want to get the right UI or the right data access piece for this particular uh, framework that I'm currently on, but I'm doing that in a very portable way. Are we going back to interface-based plug-in architecture then? Well, I, I think that that's when we're on our framework, once we're within the, the context of the box and we're not on JavaScript. So if we're in the, the .NET framework on any device, yes, I think the interface coding is, is the right way to go and MEF supports that really well. Now, of course, in JavaScript, it's a different story. And when we go across to our servers, that's also a boundary, a compositional boundary, and it's a really important one that we also want to support. When we're talking about multiple platforms, how much diversity are we really talking here? Isn't it just mobile and, you know, phones and desktops? Well, the one that I'm most excited about is Xbox One. Because right. Xbox One, I believe from its current announcement, what we know so far, they finally got the family PC right. And if that's true, the Xbox One is enormous. And so yeah, it, it becomes great. one we really care a lot about. Well, but for the most part, when I look at the specs of the Xbox One, I say, this is a desktop PC. Like, there's nothing... Re- Xbox 360, hardware-wise, is more exotic than what they're talking about in Xbox One. 
Well, certainly at the time, it's certainly a smaller jump than the Xbox 360 was when it's announced. But when you look at the fact that your phone can be a controller, that's enormous. When you look at the fact that it's voice activated, that's enormous. When you look at the fact that the apps that it can target are going to be smoothly moving between phones and that, if you just look at the way a family operates and the fact that you can talk about your vacation or you can talk about your shopping list with people being able to actually prepare stuff and say, oh, this is what I want for dinner next week. And then be able to come together for five minutes minutes and solve some of that stuff. I believe that there are applications we've never seen before that will run on the Xbox One in homes and will sell Xbox One. You just ones. blew through a whole list of very cool features people may or may not have heard about, but uh, go look at the, go watch the videos of Xbox One. It's really impressive. Right. And that doesn't necessarily reflect the hardware itself. I mean, we could do that across very disparate systems. You know, there's no question the iPhone could be part of that with its ARM chipset and architecture being radically different. I'm, I appreciate that the fact that when they went back to sort of traditional PC architecture with the Xbox One makes a lot of sense to me because it, we've gotten to a place now from a hardware perspective where general computing is actually faster than specialized computing. It costs too much to try and keep up with the rate that Intel's moving chip technology forward. Right. I think you're absolutely correct on that. And I think that the fact that the uh, the basic PC technology with some special graphics works that they're doing with the Xbox One does make it a gaming machine. Now, whether it's as a straight-up gaming machine, will it match something like the, the next version of the PlayStation? I don't know if it will, and I don't know if it has to. No, I tend to agree. I think PlayStation 3 actually made a mistake that the, it costs so much to build that hardware, they didn't sell enough of them. And to utilize that hardware fully for a game required so many development resources, you couldn't make enough money on the game. And it, PlayStation actually was behind the ball that not enough machines. So you couldn't build, you couldn't afford to build the game that that game machine was capable of playing of. So people wouldn't buy it because the games weren't as good as it could be. Absolutely. And we've seen this enormous switch in the gaming world from the big, expensive $79 and $89 games to the 2 and $3 games. Mm. And that's an entirely different kind of game at every single level, including what it requires of the processor it's running on. So, okay, portable classes. Uh, we, we have yet to see what's going to happen with the Xbox and the Xbox One there, but uh, it should be interesting. What else is interesting to you uh, in .NET 4.5 other than async? Well, my uh, my next favorite feature is the event tracing for Windows support, and that comes through a new class called Event Source. Event tracing for Windows. Right. So tell, tell us about that. So starting way back in the Vista timeframe, Microsoft put tracing into the operating system. So it's baked deep into the core of the operating system. And this supports a myriad of things that are already happening, including the event viewer as it's running right now. Okay, so system events, application events, security events, that kind of thing. Right. And slowly, the dev side, the .NET folks have been slowly moving into that. And we're sort of at a watershed moment right now where I think it's extremely valuable for the average developer. So the way they've been moving into it is sort of twofold. One is that .NET produces a huge number of events for you without mm -hmm. you doing a thing. Mm -hmm. And then you can throw events into that stream that makes sense to your application. So for example, uh, one of the demos I do just throws a divide by zero exception. And without changing an app in any way whatsoever, that exception, as a divide by zero exception, is reported in the ETW stream if it's turned on. So some declarative way that we can just turn eventing on and then any exceptions that we get automatically get logged. Well, all of that's already there. The only piece that's not there just straight out of the box is that 
so you have a divide by zero exception. If you don't know what record number you're on or who's logged in mm. or what the values actually were mm. or what that kind of information, then it's not very helpful so to you. So you need some context in so there. So you need to throw the context in. And so it's the, it's the logging information that only you can give. Mm. So we used to have a phrase like, write the code only you can write. Well, now it's like, do the logging only you can do. So we used to have to do this with the system diagnostics, event logging thing. Back in .NET 1.0, we could do that. But now it, this is happening more automatically. Right. So we're seeing a huge change in how we do tracing and logging. And this is a, it's a complete rethink, redo of our logging So how do we get all that systems. contextual information into the event? So the event source is a new class and it makes it extremely easy for you to create an ETW event. So all these holistic events are being thrown out there right now. All you have to do is turn them on. They're, they're already ready to go mm-hmm. through .NET, through the operating system, the file system, mm-hmm. everything running on your machine. These are already being created. So you add to that the events that really matter to your application. So when a record changes, when you send off a request for a save, uh, the moments in your application when you really wish you knew where you were. I see. So these aren't, these are just informational events that you're logging. These aren't necessarily exceptions. Right. So these make it easier for you when you do have an exception to go trace back and see through the event log. Right. So the way I like to ask people to think about it is if you had this really, really rich river that was throwing, that was flowing past you and you were throwing buoys into that river because without the buoys of what you know, you can't make any sense of what's flowing past Mm. and you're just throwing out those key pieces. With nanosecond accuracy, you're going to be able to to compare that back with everything else that's going on on that thread or that process or that box, depending on exactly what you're trying to look for. It still has a ways to go. It's not finished. But right now, you can use it effectively today. The place it's not finished is the tooling isn't where we want it to be. So that's a little painful. But once you get over that and you get used to some new tools, then it's a really sweet way to get information. I'm still fighting with exactly what kind of events I want to pop into the stack there. Because if, if, I mean, an exception is going to pop an event anyway. That's right. You do nothing to get the exception. That's right. already for free. It's already there. So I think that, that the, the best example is you, you're floating around and you're and long in your application and all of a sudden an exception comes up. Mm-hmm. You divide by zero, whatever. This, this is something that just happens. Now, do you know what record you're on? Do you know what screen the user's on? Do you know what the, call was that came into your web server on that? Do you have any of the parameters that were available? That's the kind of information I think you want to keep in the stream. And I think you want to throw it out there all the time uh, so that that's, it's already out there. It's blazingly fast. Mm-hmm. You can do, you know, a, you can do 50 million a second with tracing turned on. I mean, it's a blazingly fast to throw out there. So to throw a few hundred or a few thousand traces out a second, I don't think that's a problem for Not performance. Yeah, it's... Well, I do appreciate that, you know, as a guy who has to run Exchange, I go back and watch the event logs around Exchange, and you see Exchange informationally, you know, no error involved, which is like, hey, I'm getting ready to, to do a defragment cycle on the, the mailbox. I finished that. So that you have this sort of informational record of what was going on. And then if there are errors that occur, you have a pretty good picture of what the state of Exchange was at the time those errors occurred. Right. And and your application, if you're doing any serious uh, computing or you're doing any any complex things, you absolutely want to do entry and exit mm-hmm. from that that pathway. Um, you already also have things like threads. When you do a thread switch in .NET, you've got that for free right now mm-hmm. too to help with some of the async and multi-threading debugging that you might 
be needing uh, to do on that. Although there is the multi-threaded debugger, if you're really going to go pursue multi-threading problems. Yes, and there's there's a lot of, of new... Th- the multi-threading debugging has really gotten better in .NET. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we're ever going to say it's good enough because it's so hard to do that. Right. Another thing I'll tell your listeners about is that if you go into help on some of the debugging, um, and I can get you the link. I haven't already, but I'll get that for you. There is a application, and it's the wackiest application you ever imagined in your life. But if you load that application, you can actually practice debugging, multi-threaded debugging. Hmm. Because one of the problems is is that you don't get a chance to do multi-threaded debugging until you're in a problem so complicated that your head's spinning already, right. and you don't know how the tools work. And so if you go into this stupid application, right. which you don't have to understand what practice. the application does, it just gives you the breakpoints to go play yeah. with the tools and get to know them. So getting back to the the, the tracing. The tracing. In practical terms, is this something that we want to turn on in every app or is this something that you'd want to flip a switch when you're having problems so that you can, you know, see what's going on? And you, it's a conundrum because, you know, typically you may have a problem that exists only, you know, happens only once and you may not be able to reproduce it. So, you know, is this something that you would turn on sort of during beta testing and leave on and then take out after beta testing or? Well, one of the great things about ETW is it's designed with separate controllers, consumers, and providers. So mm-hmm. your application is a new provider. Mm-hmm. It's giving more information. A controller can turn that on and off on any schedule you want it to. Your application can remain running. You don't have to restart your application. Mm-hmm. So you can turn that on and off whenever you want to. Certain events, I think, should probably always be on because yeah. they're giving baseline of what's going on in your application. If you get a surprise, you want to know those pieces of information. Mm-hmm. But certainly there's additional levels of verbosity, and there is a good filtering system. So you can have error levels, you can have key codes, you can have more information that somebody can later use to turn those events on and off. And uh, and is this something that you would typically just use on the Windows side, on the desktop side, or is this server-side, ASP.NET stuff as well? Far more important on the server side. Yeah. You can use it on both, but on the desktop, you have some hope of being able to reproduce that error on your own machine while mm. you're running Visual Studio. On the server, very often, that hope is zero. You're just right. really not going to reproduce it. Now, what's wrong with my you know, enterprise logging block? Okay, so for one thing, they're rewriting it. So the enterprise logging uh, block has been out there, and it uses some of the old-style technologies, and it it uses not it does not use ETW. Mm -hmm. So the Patterns and Practices group has uh, created a wrapper around the new event source that provides some features that event source doesn't by itself. And the number one thing it provides is being able to use this exact same semantics as though you were going to the ETW system and go to traditional systems like a rolling log or a database or something that you're more familiar with as a, a developer. Sure. And during development, I think that's a fantastic tool because during development, you don't care that much about performance and those things are more familiar. Mm-hmm. Once you go to actually production, I think that the uh, ETW, the ETL files it creates, that that's the way to go for performance reasons. But the, the block that they've created, um, they call it the semantic logging application block, the new one mm-hmm. that Patterns and Practices has done. And the word semantic is important, but it's what event source already does. ETW is already a semantic source. Slab? 
Yeah, I was going to wait to say that because, okay, I didn't, I'm just the messenger here. <laughs> I really don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> I don't Could have been slob or slag. So, yes, it, it's slab and they use My slab. My app has crashed and it's on the slab. Yeah. <laughs> Cold stone slab. Yes. So, it does a couple of things that are really important. Uh, one of which is makes it easier for you to make it look like your old style log. And it feels more comfortable to a developer. And that's a big deal when you're making the the transition. But I also got to say in favor of ETW, when I put my IT hat on, is now that log stream shows up in operations manager and all of the tools that my ops guys use for free. Like, it's just there. Maybe. It may not. And there's two problems with getting it into those tools. And some of them do it and some of them don't. And some of them are going to. And I can't go through that list because I'll screw up what's NDA and what's not and what's coming and what's not. So there's two things that event source. So the Microsoft specific, not .NET 4.5 does. Right. That screws up your tools. Okay. The first thing is it doesn't talk to the admin channel. It talks to the diagnostics channel. So ETW under the hood has four different channels and it's designed so that the admin events don't show up getting in the way of the developers and the developer diagnostic events don't get in the way of admins. So it's a good wall to have, but we want to cross that wall now and let admins see. Yeah. For the using tools. ETW, it's because, well, I mean, are you doing diagnostics or actually doing administration and letting people know what's really going on? So today, as of this moment, mm-hmm. then event source does not write to the admin channel. And the major reason it doesn't is because it uses a, a unique approach to the manifest. So what happens under the hood is that you barf out this binary stream that no one could read. And then you also have a manifest that explains how to make sense of that and turn it back into English. Mm-hmm. So historically, the manifest has been installed on a machine and it's installed through final production apps that don't change. Well, the way that event source is designed, they'll change all the time. Sure. And every time you change it, then you have versioning problems. And these would be enormous. Right, because you have the old log entries for the previous version still, and you still need to be able to read those. Right. But your manifest is changing because of the new version installed. And you're totally screwed. I mean, this is a t- big problem. So what event source does is something called inline manifests, which means that there's literally an event that goes down the pipeline that says, yo, I'm a manifest. Right. So this, the tools then grab that event, load the manifest in real time instead of loading it from the machine. Right. And then they have a very dynamic manifest and it changes when it needs to and it's beautiful. And if you have multiple machines that you're pulling traces from, you can evaluate that on a core machine right. and you not deal care. With, if you're, yeah, you've, you have different manifests for different machines at different states. Right. I mean, the only tricky part here is you have to, as you come into the stream, you've got to back up to you can grab the manifest and then work back forward again to know what the template is for reading those items. Right. And and all that works pretty well on the tools that know anything about inline manifests. Right. But we're still in the process. And boy, Richard, I hope that your folks that you talk to will help push Microsoft to get inline manifests into every single tool that's out there. Um, This is not something that they've never heard about. They're working on it, but they're trying to prioritize it with other things. So it's going to come out in some of the IT tools piecemeal. But something like Event Viewer that we care a lot about getting Mm -hmm. it into... I don't know when that's scheduled for. Yeah, and so this is, it's a big deal that, that we slowly move forward, uh, along that direction to get that 
everybody being able to talk to the same streams all the time. And we're not quite there yet. Other than the tooling, that's the second problem we've got is talking across all the different channels and being able to control that from the app. Mm -hmm. Because I'd like to be able to write stuff to your admin stream. I'd like to have something specifically for your admin that says something like, yo, this guy doesn't have the right security. Would you please go fix it? And I don't want... The, the diagnostics people to ever see that. It's totally an admin. Yeah. Uh, or, or security audit logs. Like we know the fact that we could have our apps, our custom apps play ball the same way our commercial apps play. Right. So it's, it's great stuff and it's really important the progress we've made so far, but we're not finished. Mm-hmm. There's more work to be done uh, down that space. So for and in .NET 4.5, this ETW implementation is really about diagnostics, not about administrative reporting. Right. Today, that is absolutely true. And I don't know when that's going to change. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to throw a stupidity buoy in a river of intelligence. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? You don't remember that conversation? Yeah, of course I remember that conversation. All right, okay. Now it's time to announce the winner of a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. Uh, we're giving one away to one lucky member of the Dot and Rocks fan club. But before we do that, I need to tell you that Kendo UI by Telerik is everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites and mobile apps. And now Kendo UI comes with server-side wrappers for ASP.NET MVC. You'll be able to produce awesome HTML5 apps powered by Kendo UI without being forced to write JavaScript. Simply program on the server and the Kendo UI wrappers will handle the HTML and JavaScript. You will have fun and your boss will be amazed. Visit the official Kendo UI website at kendoui.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T to find out more about Kendo UI or download the free 30-day trial with full support. Don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Our winner today is Anthony O'Connor. Ah, golf clap for you, sir. <laughs> and Anthony wins the Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. That's everything Telerik does in one box. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, Answer a few questions and join the fan club. We have thousands of members. Every show we give away a DevCraft Complete Collection. And every December we give away $5,000 worth of stuff, worth of technology to one lucky winner. And we like to ask our guests, Kathleen, if you had five grand to drop on toys right now, what would you do? What would you buy? Technology. Oh, wow. I'd probably buy music toys. Um, I'm not sure exactly what I would get, but right now I'm sort of without speakers and without... uh, a, uh, I'm without an amplifier and speakers, so that's probably oh, what I would grab. you came to the right guy. I will get you set up. Yeah. You come to the, you <laughs> I don't have five know. grand right now, though. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. You let me yeah. know if you ever do, because I will set you up. Yeah, that's good stuff. So, not a, a like a keyboard. You're just talking about basic, like, really good speakers and... Right, yeah. right, right, right. Well... For listening. For keyboard from my computer, I have the best one. I have the Gold Touch. Uh, I'm talking the about Gold Touch Split. I know. Un- yeah, you know what no. I'm talking about. I kind of have the fiddles I need right now. The fiddles, yep. And you could spend a lot more than five grand on a pair of speakers if you really want to. Oh, sure, you could. But after a while, it gets silly. Oh, pretty quickly it gets silly. After even over a thousand dollars on speakers, things get pretty silly. Well, I recommend the Mackie HR824s, and those are what studio, those are studio reference monitors. I use those in the studio, but they're great for home listening as well. Great bass response. And, you know, combined with a subwoofer, they're even better. And they're not that much money. Uh, yeah, they're about a grand a piece. All right. That's fair. Yeah. So there you go. Carl's tip of the day. So what's next on your list? Well, there's a lot of small things, and I, I think that uh, talking about a couple of those is worthwhile. And 
Um, I okay. also want to clarify that I'm not really up on all the changes in the supporting uh, classes. So there's a lot of stuff going on in ancillary things, especially in the ASP.NET space. Yeah, um, and, and we also, we did a show a while back with yeah. Julie Lerman just talking about there's some significant changes in ND Framework. From yeah, ND Framework and uh, Communications Foundation. And, of course, there's Workflow, which I suppose is worth a passing mention mm-hmm. because all of the .NET 3.0 Workflow stuff is obsolete in yeah. this in .NET 4.5. Now, is it because nobody uses it or is it because they've changed it all? Or what, what happened with Workflow? Well, so workflow was completely changed in .NET 4.0. And the old model, uh, it was an attempt to solve the wrong problem, I think. They mm-hmm. went up against million-dollar workflow solutions that were popular at the time. Yeah. They built a monstrosity that was too complicated for most people to use, had a lot of performance problems. They went back to the drawing board. And the new version, I think, has a lot going for it. The other thing that was going on at the time was that SharePoint was building their own workflow. And BizTalk had their own workflow, too. So it seemed to me that those guys all got together and tried to build a common engine that they actually wanted to exercise in their own products. Which well, I-, I actually think one of the problems was they weren't working together well right. enough at the time. And well, before what, four, before four, they weren't working well enough at the t- together well enough for the time. And and it was supposed to be the .NET one was going to go into SharePoint right. and BizTalk, but what they built really wouldn't fit into SharePoint or BizTalk. So it's really been a lot of chaos. SharePoint did pick a part of it, by the way, mm-hmm. so the 3.0 version. Um, but it's really been chaotic. I still think the marketing story is very chaotic, but I'm glad that the new version of Workflow is being dog-fooded mm-hmm. inside Microsoft on some things like, um, interesting things like going on in the uh, Team Foundation server yeah. space. So they're using it in places. Well, that's what you want to see. Right? Absolutely. Like, don't make us dog food this thing. Go take it out for a spin because your guys are pretty good. You know, WPF only got really good after Studio 2010 beat the snot out of it and made right. it a substantially better product. I feel the same way about .NET 2.0. Right. The process of making .NET run inside a SQL Server, while not a good idea, made .NET dramatically better. Because the SQL team was no mercy, right? Well, and they were doing things nobody had thought about. You were running it in a new environment. Like, that's a big deal. And I think with Workflow, we still have a long way to go. I'm actually a firm believer in Workflow in every app every time, and I don't believe Workflow in 4.5 is there yet. Hmm. Um, But we'll get there, and then I'll be able to say publicly, like this isn't public, uh, that I think we should be at a place where every app has workflow every time. And it's just a part of what we do. It's what we're writing, for heaven's sakes, as developers. We just pretend it's something other than workflow right. and make go to a lot of work doing other things when in the end of the day, we're a state machine. We wake up in the morning and we start thinking and building state machines right. when we get so to work. So why not just pack, have those set of services firing the workflow, even if there's only one path through the app, as long as it is built as a workflow, when you need to change it and you will, it's data. And also, workflow is inherently metaprogramming, and I'm all over metaprogramming. So I hope we get there. I think we will get there. I think they're going the right direction. I think they just aren't there, aren't going there fast enough, and they're they're still struggling. I think on that side with community, there's a lot of places in Microsoft they're awesome with community. They're still struggling a little bit with those teams leveraging the community to tell them what they need, and they haven't learned how to listen yet, as well as they will be able to in the future. So, what about compatibility? Is there backward compatibility with workflow? No. Oh. <laughs> it's an ugly story, but it's one that's been out, and everyone who's using .NET 3.0 workflows already knows that. They already know they're in trouble, and one way or another, they're working to move forward. But they can't move to the Visual Studio 2012 compilers until they are ready to let those be obsoleted. Rewrite so, their workflows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I do think that 
as a community as a whole, we're still struggling with what we really want from workflow as well. This is meta programming and it's hard. It is. Absolutely it is. And, and do we want to do our navigation on our websites that way? Cause we absolutely can. Yep. Do we want to do uh, only long term, long lived workflows, which is one of the places we're a little weak right now? Mm-hmm. What exactly do we want to be doing? And I think that, um, that we'll get there. It's just been a much different path than we thought it was going to be, uh, to get where we, we're going to get to the right place in a couple more years. We're, we're definitely making a lot of progress. Yeah, you know, there's another place where Microsoft could really take a step forward, like actually having a really interesting uh, reference implementation of, say, an MVC app that depends on workflow would be pretty profound. Well, maybe. Maybe we just need to keep making MVC a little more performant and work on that aspect of the game. Um, I don't know. Um, I think that MVC is solving some problems really sure. well. But whether that's the basis for moving forward on bigger and more complex things, um, I'm not really sure about that right now because there's a lot of overhead involved in that mm-hmm. that you may or may not want as you go into that. We may want the next thing that replaces MVC to be entirely workflow-based as opposed to um, moving forward just directly on that technology. Yeah, you need paint that picture then of here's another abstraction layer be- that sits between the UI and those underlying controllers that would allow you to say, hey, I want to make this a programmatical, flexible model and, and be able to modify navigation without you know, really getting down into the weeds and rewriting all those pages. Right, absolutely. And be also being able to reuse pages more easily because I r- deeply believe a website's a temporary combination of a set of information, we call them pages, that could go together in a different format for a different department or next year or a different organization with different branding. And when we look at all those possibilities, I, one of the things that I see as a weakness in MVC is that it does like, it, it's very website based. Mm-hmm. And I do think that we're going to move away from website basing just as a natural progression over the next couple of years. Yeah, I'm coming to much more of this idea of a composable model. Absolutely. Composition is what we keep coming around to. We used to call it abstraction and composition actually is a little bit different, mm-hmm. but it's sort of the next generation of abstraction mm-hmm. um, because what it allows us to do is put pieces together as opposed to layers together. And it's a really important step forward. But at the end of the day, we're developers, we're designers, we're architects that are looking at working in manageable chunks instead of chunks that are too big for humans to deal with. Mm -hmm. And we used to do that with layers and the layers got too big. And now we're doing it with composition. And I don't know where we'll go next. Sure. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard to understand exactly what that's going to look like next. But especially when you start getting into cloud applications, where we're dealing with this assemblies of services that are often very disparate or running against a bus as well. Workflow makes a lot of sense there. And, but it's, it's how you insert it still. It, it feels like you're still trying to put workflow on top. And I think it's actually a middle layer. Well, I think it's the middle layer. It's the bottom layer. I mean, it's either really super core and it's underneath the, the hood on everything or it's a middle layer. Um, I think that we've got a lot of pieces that we're going to be playing with putting together. And right now we have this two completely different pathways of how we handle messaging, things like the Azure service bus mm-hmm. and how we handle workflow. And I know that they kind of, when they work together, they like one's on top of the other. Yeah. And I'm not sure that that's really where we'll be at, at the end of this. I think that there's still another round of rethinking the whole communications, messaging, permanent messaging, which is kind of what workflow is, and states. And those things are kind of mished together right now in a way that feels quite awkward. And I don't believe that'll be true in a year or two. Yeah, I we, think we need be a coherent s- set of patterns around that. Absolutely. 
do see message-based workflow implementations where you're essentially saying, I'm in this state, what's my next step? And the message comes back to make your next step. And so the workflow is now buried inside of a particular service model. And I don't think that's right, but it seems to work and it doesn't work with the workflow engines we've got today. And we move closer to it all the time, but we're not there yet. Okay, let's move on. What's next on your list? Well, I guess I want to talk for just a minute about the big picture because we really didn't start with that. And I kind of want people to to make sure that when you think about .NET 4.5, you've got it in mind. So to start with, we've got an in-place release. Mm. People probably heard that phrase before. Yeah, and it's not necessarily fun. No. Because it writes over the existing assemblies without looking like a new version. Right. And so, honestly, I'm in a talk trying to figure out how we talk about this. And the correct, the most correct way to talk about it would be to talk about the .NET 4.0 versions, the .NET 4.0 assemblies, and the .NET 4.5 versions, the .NET 4.0 assemblies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you what like could that? go wrong? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? So, um, it's true. And on top of that, we have some very, very important releases that were made January 8th of this mm-hmm. year. That's which CDP2. Uh, no, we're talking about uh, the first update to the .NET framework itself. Okay, so that came out on Windows Update in January 8th, 2013, and that has set of required and set of recommended updates together. So the required updates were security updates on .NET 4.5 RTM. The recommended updates were bug fixes to backwards compatibility. Hmm. So if you're looking at doing .NET 4.5 and you can possibly control your production machines, you want those backwards compatibility fixes to be on there before you get started. Was that called the reliability pack? Yes, it's called the reliability updates, yes. So <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just kind of funny. <laughs> you think that's funny? Uh, just an update as a reliability update. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So um so that's a, the beginning point is that that they that comes out as an in place release. And it looks, if I do a drawing, it looks just like 3.0 coming out on top of .NET 2.0. If I draw a picture, it looks identical. However, it's fundamentally different scenario because this time around, the .NET 4.0 core libraries, your framework core libraries, are changing, and they're changing a lot. They're committed to backwards compatibility. I don't think everyone should panic and go running in the streets, but it's not a stable tweaks-only, bug-fixes-only throw stuff on top, it, we're actually making changes to these things. And in some cases, they can bite you because if, uh, and, and I, I don't remember exactly what the situation was, but there was a situation where some something had changed and it, there was no way to tell reliably what version of the assembly you were running against. Okay, so a couple of comments on that. First of all, you can't control what version of the assembly you're running against. You can look for features um, and you can determine which one you're running on if you can change your code. But if your code's already in the field, you're right. not going to change what it, it's running against. Without you knowing it, you could be running against the updated assemblies and have no idea you're doing it. Well, and, and there be- are breaking changes. And this is a an update, so it's being shipped out via Windows Update. No, it's actually, it's, okay, so if you're on 4.5, you get the reliability and the recommended updates through Windows Update. Okay. If you're on 4.0, it will not turn a machine into 4.5 on Windows Update yet. Right. Okay, so right now that's not going to happen. It might, but right now it's not. <laughs> it might. Well, I feel better. Well, there's so many other ways, and the reason... I'm just thinking about machines out in the field getting this update, and now the app break. Well, and if if you have an app in the field, the reason I can tell you you better be testing against the new ones is because that's what comes with Windows 8 and Windows Server 2012. Right. So, if unless you can control people getting new machines, they're going to be on the new versions. Right. 
And so you really need to test against both versions. Because it sure feels like Microsoft's forcing us to 4.5 in a big hurry. Like you're going to, the default's going to be 4.5 very fast. I, I think that's right. And I, I do think it's fair to stay, take a step back and say, why are they doing this? And mm-hmm. they didn't ask me, and I'm not going to give an opinion on whether they're right or wrong, but I will tell you why mm-hmm. they did it. And that's because of the change from how often they're going to give us updates. Right. So it used to be a big pile of stuff on rare occasions. So right. every 18 months to two years, big, big, big pile of stuff mm-hmm. and very overwhelming and people had to go through this big transition. So we may or may not still have those, but in between those, we now have small releases on a regular basis. Right. So we'll have new features whenever they want to give us new features. And because of that, uh, they're going to change a lot. And if they were changing every, twice a year, in three years, you'd have six copies of the .NET framework running side by side. Right. And tell me that would be any better no, for any front. It's not better for the developer. It's yeah. not better for the user. It's not better for anybody. Assembly hell. Well, and we're, we're in a different kind of assembly hell. Yeah. So we're in assembly hell where we get written over. We could be in assembly hell where we're sitting side by side. It's yeah, both assembly hell. Different levels of purgatory. Right? Yeah. So we're, Dante wrote about this. Yeah, so it's the it's nine levels of dot net. <laughs> <laughs> when you see the three headed dog, it's time to go okay. back. All right, right. So you're you're dealing with that now. The other thing I want to make sure people understand is when you go into Visual Studio 2012, you can back target to dot net 4.0. Right. In fact, you can take a dot net 4.0 app that was written with Service Pack. One of Server 2010, go forward to Server 2012, and go back. Visual Studio 2010 Service hmm. Pack 1. So you can do that. That's fine. But there's different compilers. Right. So if you were to compile that app, and it, the app, you look at the source code, you can't tell the difference. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you go into Visual Studio 2010 Service Pack 1 and you compile it. You're against one set of compilers. Right. You go into Visual Studio 2012, you're in a different set of compilers. Right. So if you're in 2012, you've got those compilers no matter what you're targeting. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of hard for people to realize. And the compilers have breaking changes. Right. So we definitely need to stay very attuned to testing, very attuned to creating test systems so we can have a lot of different um, things set up out there. And I think build servers. I think if there was ever a question of whether you should have a build server, get over it. You want to know what you're compiling against. Isn't this just screaming for app V for application virtualization? Just all these crazy, you know, trying to patch the system so that the system is at a certain level versus applications having their own sort of requirements that can exist alongside each other with different requirements. Well, maybe I I don't know. I don't know quite where we're going to go on that because it's, with the phone out there and Xbox out there and things like that out there, the answer has to go across everything. And I don't quite know where we're going to go in big picture on that. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's less of a problem with PCs because we have the space and we have the memory for all these big processes, but on little devices, it's not so easy. Absolutely. And I think one of the messages we're getting from Microsoft right now, and I don't know if it's a permanent message, but for right now, it's that it's one world and it has to work on these small devices as well as our big powerful devices. And that's what they've been doing, right? The, The one kernel everywhere, which is really awesome. It's just a question of what services are built on top of it. And virtualization services are expensive, but I'm not going to bet against CPUs 
not increasing in power all the time. It wouldn't surprise me at all if we do some kind of virtualization of the phone at some point just because of the reliability advantages it brings. Well, absolutely. And I think when we get to that, it's just going to require some variations in what we call virtualization. I think it's going to require a lot more reuse across virtualized platforms. I think that the very definition of virtualization is going to wind up evolving over the next couple of years. And the graphene revolution will change everything. Smaller devices, more memory, more battery. So who knows? Maybe we are talking about app virtualization on the phone someday. Well, virtualization on everything, really. Well, I think at that point, virtualization may take on some entirely new meanings and where, what parts of that virtualization are going to be local and in the cloud and how fast are we going to be talking between devices? I think there's a huge world of change. Well, in I mean, the next just decade. if you think about what the framework does and it's, it sort of relates to the operating system versus the app. You know, at the operating system level, probably very little has to change in that kernel. But, you know, with all these new versions of, you know, versions of things that affect us, like workflow and .NET frameworks and things like that, those could exist. And they can exist side by side. But, you know, how much of that stuff affects other apps? That's where we get into, you know, the benefits of virtualization. Right. And it kind of brings us around to PCL as well, because we talked about portable class libraries, and we are defining libraries differently. If you go under the hood of the way PCL puts libraries together, and it's it's absolutely astounding that Microsoft did this with nobody noticing, mm -hmm. is that the, the what is in system core libraries has changed. Hmm. But you don't see that because of the redirection that they put in. So they fundamentally changed the way applications work inside DLLs with this whole redirection system. And most people don't even know it happened because it's so seamless. If you want to watch it, go look in Object Browser. Because Object Browser is the one place that it really rises up to where you could look at a portable class library in a portable class library subset legacy. And you're going to see really different things in there. And that's because there's two ways to build the libraries out as DLLs. And that's what you're actually seeing. So they're massively different. At that point, we're redefining what an assembly is. So we can redefine what an assembly is. Then when we go to a next generation of virtualization, that can really redefine things in a quite different way than today we mean virtualization, build the whole stack, build everything up, create an isolated sandboxed environment. On the phone, that may not be what virtualization looks like. Well, it just look, you know, Windows 8 had all this new encapsulation of processes so that they didn't cross talk anywhere they wanted. It was very much a manifest based. Here's how the paths I'm allowed to communicate to. So it's almost like you've built these virtual containers inside of this common space anyway. The very controlled set of communications, which eliminates a lot of problems in theory. I don't know how well it's really going to work over the years. Well, I think as far as that, the next generate, you know, the next thing we have to do is look at Windows 8 and can we really create the apps that we want? Mm -hmm with as many restrictions as we currently have. And my answer is very clearly no, and I don't know where we're going to go forward on that. But I do think that in this generation for Windows 8, Microsoft chased Apple too much, has too much sandboxing, mm -hmm. and lost too much of what we want in a PC as opposed to a different kind of, of you know, What actually device. makes people productive. Exactly. And I think we're, you know, pendulum swing, we're going to get it. We're going to get what we need. What do you think uh, we're going to find in Windows Blue as developers? I haven't looked at it uh, yet. I haven't, yeah. uh, you know, haven't really taken a look at it. But what do you wish? 
What do I wish was in there? Well, other than the whole uh, one meth to rule them all, but uh, we're not going to get that. Mm. So um, I really don't know. I I want Windows 8 to grow up. And I really love my Windows 8 tablet. I really like it even on the desktop. And I really want it to grow up. I want to have live tiles I can talk to from a a desktop application. Mm -hmm. I want the walls, a lot of walls to come down. Uh, I want a a whole different device. And I don't think that's what we're going to get. Yeah, I'm looking for a more serious Metro app. You know, they're all very cute and fun right now, but show me the killer Metro app. Right. And I think you can't write a killer Metro app for the way we think about apps until we have more flexibility with the device. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to probably get that right now, but I think we have to eventually get it Mm -hmm. because eventually Apple will do it and then we'll do it. Yeah. I don't know that everybody's, that Apple's wagging anybody anymore. Right. But I do think that Microsoft is still not quite ready to say, what do we do really well and how do we do it? For, so the, my biggest disappointment in Windows 8, although that ship's probably sailed, is it doesn't talk to a domain controller and you can't, you can't do, I mean, it doesn't talk to your, um, domain controller. Yeah. Domain yeah. controller. Um, so you can't use your security that you've got set up across your corporation in your Windows 8 devices, your tablet devices out of the box. Well, not the RT ones, but the regular, you know, I've got a little Iconia 510 that's thinner and lighter than the RT device and runs Win Pro. Okay, right. I am just talking about RT and maybe yeah. RT's dead now. I, I think, you know, I, Microsoft's move to make an ARM device made sense in the, in, from the perspective of we have an alternative Intel if Intel can't get their power consumption down and can't get to build these form factors more effectively. But I think they have. That little Acer blows my mind. It's running Intel Atom, so it runs full Windows. It's got six hours of battery life in the slate, another 10 hours when you plug it into the keyboard, and it's 700 bucks. Like, it's, how does RT beat this on the first go already? I'm, the other thing I'm looking for coming out of this next launch around blue and so forth is show me the next generation RT device, and it better be epic, or what are we doing? You guys just wait till we get graphene batteries. We're, you are stuck on this graphene I thing. I'm smitten with graphene. And <laughs> you, so is Richard. He's just holding it back. <laughs> I, I, I'm I don't know if it's the one right way, but it certainly is a way. We'll see what happens. I, I ran into a guy who's embedding graphene into plastic to make casings that are even harder and more uh, you know, rugged than normal uh, plastics. So, yeah, it's an interesting time. Listen to our show on nanotechnology. That was pretty good. So, Kathleen, what's next for you? Well, um, a c- couple things. I'm working on the Pluralsight videos, and that's pretty exciting to me because I get the chance to take the stuff I want every single .NET coder to see. So, I want every .NET coder to watch my What's New in .NET 4.5 and get that kind of stuff. So, that's really fun for me. I'm also uh, moving towards working with teams uh, because I think I have a lot of, brings together a lot of skills and talents. Mm. Um, that's a, you know, show up on site one week a month, make sure you're making the team better, not just making the team depend on you. Right. And so that's the other thing I've got going. And uh, I've got a couple of conferences coming up. I'll be at Dev Intersections in the fall. And yeah. I'm really excited about that. I'll be talking about the event tracing stuff that's great. at Dev Intersections. So I'm really excited about that. I'd like to see that. I'll be there too. So Richard. All right, Kathleen, thanks. It's been great talking to you. It's been great. Thank you. All right, we'll see you next time on Donnet Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com.
Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band